Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Conversations on issues impacting Californians of all ages. Here's your host, Theon Gordon. Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Join us as we dive into issues and policies that impact Californians of all ages, particularly older adults, and learn how you can connect with AARP to make our state more livable for all. I am an AARP volunteer and your host, Dr. Theon Gordon. Today, we are joined by Dr. Samuel Sandoval Solis to discuss the state of water in California. From water access to the impact of severe weather on water, we will be covering it all. Dr. Solis has an impressive background on this topic. He is a professor of Cooperative Extension of Water Resources at University of California, Davis, and a recognized expert in water planning and management. Dr. Solis, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hola a todos. It's a pleasure being here. Well, we are so happy to have you. And I want to jump in like we normally do because we have a lot of questions for you on this interesting topic. First and foremost, let's start with what is the state of water in California? We were in a drought. Then it rained a lot in early 2023. Where does the state stand when it comes to water supplies as we close out the third quarter of 2023, so to speak? I want our audience to think of water in kind of different buckets or in different containers. So one is rain and snow. And on that specific bucket, we are between 120 to 182% above average. There is no normal in California, so that's good. In terms of reservoir storage, we are finishing the summer and we are between 70 to 86% of reservoirs full. That is quite amazing considering that we are already during the growing season, so a lot of the water should have gone. Groundwater storage, that's a different question. We've been over-pumping or over-drafting. What that means is exploiting our groundwater resources for more than 100 years. So there we have a very long depth. So we need, yes, it was good in terms of how much water got into the aquifers in the ground. But yeah, we have a long deficit there. And finally, in, in the soil moisture, how much water we can store on those two, three feet of soil, it is not drowned throughout the state. So we're good in there. In terms of the drought, I think the short-term drought has finished. And when I say short-term drought, it was the previous three years. But we're in a process of aridification. What that means is that our weather is getting hotter and drier. So just to give you an idea... Eight out of the 12 last years were in dry conditions, less precipitation than usual. What that means is that we're entering in a period that it will be hotter and drier. Okay, so it's going to be hotter and drier. Does that mean we're not able to capture all the fresh storm water like we received in 2023? What happens to that? It seems like we should have some water in reserves. You mentioned the reservoir storage. Yeah, yeah. So we catch quite a lot of water, actually a lot of water. We put all of that water again in reservoirs, in, we keep it, some of it in the snowpack, aquifers, and so on. 
Now, for most of our listeners, this is a good point of conversation. About three quarters of the state, 74%, depends on water from the Delta. What does that mean? Water from the San Joaquin and the Sacramento River, they have to flow through the Delta into the San Francisco Bay to actually capture some of that water and send it south or send it to the coast. What that means is that if we don't let water go into the ocean, we will have no water for three quarters of Californians. We need to keep moving water out into the ocean so that water can keep seawater or salty water in the bay so we can actually export water out. Just to give you an idea, about 29 million people of the 40 million Californians depend on this. So basically, when people see that, hey, well, that water is going into the ocean, we should say like, no, and that is actually good. All of us enjoy uh, sushi, so we need to have water going into the ocean. In terms of the environment, so the most productive areas for fishing are in this interface between sea and fresh water. That's where we see all the otters and all the sea lions and all the fishes. So that is important for the economy. And also to have good, healthy environment, it really helps us save money. We are putting a lot of effort towards restoration projects. And if we don't let water go into the ocean, then we will pay more for restoration. So I think what we should be thinking is how to keep a good balance between water that we put towards the ocean for the environment and then water that we can use. Okay, so let's explore this whole idea of water access a little bit more. How do we store our water in California? If some of it needs to go to the ocean, some of it's going other places, how do we do that? So this is a great question, uh, Theon. This is one of those very good myth busters. So the largest reservoir of water in the state is groundwater. It is groundwater. It is not the reservoirs. And groundwaters are by far the largest storage. Now, I want you and our audience to think about this. Think a cube of water that is half a mile per half a mile per half a mile. That's a lot of water, like a boat load of water. So we have between 800 to 1,000 cubes of that. That's amazing. That's a lot. Some of that, as I was telling you, we've been over-extracting. But that is just to give you an idea of that size. The next one is snowpack. Snowpack stores a lot of water. Out of these cubes, large cubes that I was telling you are 35. So we went from 1,000 now to 35. So the difference is huge. And of course, snowpack depends if we have, first of all, if we have snow. If precipitation falls in terms of snow, if we have a cold winter. Second one, with Global warming, we are having less snowpack in the Sierras. So we need to have snowfall and cold temperatures. And that can go, as we have this year, these conditions from 40 to 50 of those cubes. Now, the third largest reservoir is moisture, soil moisture. A lot of the things where we can store water is actually in the soil. And that is something that we can affect ourselves. It is estimated that it's about the same amount as snowpack, 30 to 40 of those cubes. And finally, reservoirs that are 40 units of water, 40 of those cubes of water throughout the state. 
So this is at large scale where do we store water. At a smaller scale as our audience and all of us, we've been thinking like, hmm, well, around the city, I have some detention ponds. Some of these areas where stormwater falls and we store it in there. And sometimes we let it sink into the ground. So we're recharging the aquifer. In our backyard, in our front yard, how can we do this? Just putting some of the gutters into our yards. That helps quite a lot. Water barrels is another good idea. There are plenty of water barrels in San Diego. So anyway, there are plenty of places where we can store water. And I think it's good for all of us to know. Okay, this sounds wonderful. We have all these different storage areas for water, the reservoir storage, the groundwater, the snowpack, which a lot of times when you think of California, we don't think about the snow part because we think it's always sunny in California. But there's different areas where we actually do get snowpack. And then you talked about the soil moisture and other reservoirs like barrels and things like that. Can you expand on this a little bit more on how you access this? How do we get water access? When we talk about all of these different places where water is stored, now we're talking about how do you actually use it? What's the access to it? How do we access this typically? It depends. So for cities, our community that are living in cities, typically we access water through putting a pump close to the river and actually diverting water out of a river or putting a small dam and then diverting it. Also through a well. And we drill wells and extract water from it. Most of our large cities, they have access to surface water. San Francisco is uh, the Tuolumne River. All the South Bay, the McCollum. Los Angeles is uh, Owens River, uh, Mono Lake, Sacramento River, Colorado River. Now, smaller cities, sometimes they use groundwater. And groundwater typically is just, think of it, you drill a hole in the well and then put um, a pipe that has holes. So water in the ground will permeate through those holes. And then we take water out through pumps. Most of the problems with wells the ones that are close to agricultural fields, is that they are contaminated. They are typically contaminated with fertilizers and pesticides. So whatever we're doing above the ground, so for instance, myself, I'm in Davis, right? So we have water from the city of Sacramento and from groundwater. We are surrounded by agriculture. So we used to have problems related with nitrate and fertilizers in our wells. All the practices that are occurring in agriculture, they ended up percolating or sinking to the ground. And then we take that water for consumption. There are other places where we actually use recycled water. So how is that possible? So we have water that went into treatment plants that we treated to portable standards, injected back in the aquifers and take it out. So for instance, if you live in the counties of Orange County or San Diego, most likely you are already drinking water like that. And also rest assured that all of us were drinking that type of water. Again, myself, it's not that. So upstream in the Sacramento River, I'm pretty sure Redding, they are using some water, putting it back into the river, and then I'm taking that water down in Davis. So it, it's not that it is only like this direct portable reuse. We are doing that for a lot of things. 
Okay, so you're talking about moving the water around and all of these type of things. Let's explore the safety of Californians drinking water. How safe is California's drinking water and what causes pollutants in the water? Okay, and that is a very good question, Theon. It is estimated that we have one million people in California that don't have access to clean, safe, affordable water. One million out of it. And of those one million, if we consider our older adults, 22% of that, so we're talking about 220,000 older adults without access to clean, safe, affordable water. Now, that is only the tip of the iceberg. The reality is that there are 5 million people in California at risk of not having clean, safe, affordable water. So what that means is about 800,000 older adults. You will ask me, like, how is that possible? We have all these people, well, our different industries, our different economies have been using or doing a, a given economic activity, agriculture or the industry and jet fuels, that they without trying to do it on purpose, but they have been polluting our waters. Most of our water is polluted, three quarters of it, from fertilizers, nitrate, from pesticides, one, two, three, TCP, from arsenic. We have people drinking water in California with arsenic. That's almost unthinkable. And then we have others. Now, the part related with nitrate and fertilizers, make no mistake, that is irresponsible agriculture. It is agriculture that is growing the food that we have in our breakfast, but that is doing it in a way that is affecting or is putting all these things on the land that later gets into the water, into the aquifers, and then we drink it. So you mean the fertilizer that they're planting, the different things that they're growing in, is that what's getting in there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, let, let me explain you. So, for instance, fertilizers, think of it like, you're mixing your milkshake. So you put water, you put the fertilizer, and you dissolve it. And then irrigate that water through the different crops. If that water doesn't stay in the root zone, doesn't stay in the soil, it will percolate and go down into the aquifers. And that water into the aquifers, we take it from the wells. It's exactly the same with pesticides. We're still testing positive for DDT. So... These pesticides, they have a long time residence. It lives alone in the environment. And why did I say irresponsible? We have very responsible farmers. And you know, I'm a good eater. I really like agriculture. But I really like one type of agriculture. The one that does not pollute, the one that protects the environment, and the one that pays good salaries. The one that protects also the people. That's what we have in California. I will leave with you some things that our audience should take a look at it. So there is a website called Safer Board, S-A-F-E-R, dashboard. And that one, you can actually see where things are a little bit more at risk. And what does Safer Dashboard tell us? So basically, it will tell us if any of our small water systems, what are the locations that are close to our place that we live, or if we are in one of those places with a risk of having a problem with our water. Now, it's not only about water quality, it's also about access to water. Once again, in some places that are most closely to agriculture, those are the places where agriculture puts wells that are deeper than community wells or private wells. 
What does that mean? That they can get water from below than other wells, and they keep extracting until they left some of these wells dry. This is very eye-opening. We have, in the last 10, 12 years, more than 1,000 wells, more than 1,000 people, 1,000 families without access to water. Because of the drought, because of the lack, that's what happened there. So we have problems related with quality and with quantity. Something for your audience to take a look at, and specifically for older adults, and that this happened in California, I want you to go online and look for the PBS documentary that is called Watertown, Truly California. And it is the story of a town in Northern California that is called Wheat. And you will see how some of the corporations can abuse our system. We have to defend it. Unfortunately, we have to defend it. So I know a lot of people right now will be like, oh my God, what is happening to my water? I'm really interested in finding out more even about, and I'm sure the audience is curious about this whole idea of 220,000 older adults not having access to water. And then that 800,000 of 5 million that are accessing water that's not safe necessarily. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about what can we do to improve the situation. So we have all these people at risk, right? So there are things that can happen. One of the things is that you find where your water comes from. And that where your water comes from, you can go another website that is from the Community Water Center. It's called the Community Water Center Data Tools. And basically in there, you put your zip code and it will tell you where the water that is going to your house is, is coming. And if it is at risk of either don't have enough water, so water quantity or water quality. I think the, the things to do is to first know where your water comes from. The second is that we need to figure out, you need to know what is the water quality that you are receiving. All water providers in California, they must test their water source twice a year, at least, and they have to put it out in the public. So you can ask for your water quality test and to see if there is any issues, and they will also put you the parameters there. The third thing that I haven't discussed is affordability. Our listeners, I, if you receive your monthly income, paycheck, any of those, you have to compare how is your water bill compared to your monthly income. Every month, you just look at your water bill and say, like, I'm paying like $50 or $60. Divide those $60 over your monthly income. If that is above 1.5%, that means that your water is not affordable. Something to, I mean, mention here, all these 200,000 people that we put it at risk or that they don't have access, clean access to water or the 800,000 that are at risk, mostly are communities of color. So what we're talking here is Hispanics, like me. This is people that are growing our food, that are putting what you're eating in the salad, what you are putting on all those eggs there, that because they work in that, they are exposed to, to pesticides, fertilizers, and so on. I think the main issue here is that we have actually programs that are putting money towards developing these wastewater treatment plants and providing them safer access. The main issue is that we are treating the symptom 
not the cause. The symptom, yes, you have dirty water on your tap, right? But really what is causing it is pesticides and fertilizers. So if you don't stop or if you do not reduce pesticides and fertilizers, you will never get clean water in your tap. It goes back to prevention. Prevention's better than intervention. Get it from the start. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So tell me, who's responsible for maintaining and managing just our regular drinking water even? We have a state institution that is the State Water Resources Control Board. I know it's a mouthful. We typically call it the water boards. And the water boards, they have a branch that is called the drinking water branch. So specifically those folks, so they are the ones that are putting the regulations for at least being tested twice on your water system to see what systems are failing, to provide dollars. All of us, we are paying to try to hand, well, those one million Californians to provide them good access to water, five million to try to get them at risk. The main issue is that what we are working on this side, trying to provide adequate water supplies and other agencies or other agencies that have to take care of pesticides, fertilizers, they are in a different institution. So we are having the right hand not talking to the left hand. So then how can our listeners get involved when it comes to strengthening and improving water access and water safety and everything around water? How can we be better advocates? Do we reach out to the water board? What do we do? I mean, we have to start with ourselves. And I think it goes in different directions. I think the first one is we need to get informed. We need to know where our water comes from and how to protect our water sources. My water, if I live in Los Angeles, most likely comes from Sacramento, from Owens Valley, from Colorado. So how can I be a good steward and an actually an ally of people living in Sacramento to say like, hey, how can I help you to keep your forest in good shape so we have good access water? The same with Owens Valley, Mono Lake, or Colorado. So that is at the source. Then who is delivering the water to my tap? Sometimes cities have their public works and they deliver you water. Sometimes it's a different company. And this is extremely important. All of our listeners, look at your water bill. This is extremely important. And who is the company providing you the water? That is your contact person to say like, hey, <clears throat> here I am. In order to know what are their plans, all urban water systems, they have to write a water plan. So they have engineers, scientists thinking like, okay, we're going to have this many people and these are our water sources. How are we going to be able to supply it? So that is those two things. And that is kind of in the smaller space. In the bigger space, I think we need to change our mindset. And this is extremely important. So most of our audience will be thinking like, hey, Sam, what about desalination? I mean, we're never going to run out of water. The main problem is that it is very expensive and it pollutes and it uses a lot of energy. So not everyone can pay for it and certainly not agriculture. So just another meat buster, we cannot be desalinating water and put it into wine grapes or into almonds or pistachios. That's not possible. Economically, it's not feasible. The change in the mindset is a radical idea. Why don't we live within our own means? The money that I'm receiving, the money that I'm spending. 
that is very good financial decision. Why don't we do that with water? Why don't we always think like, hey, you know, let me see where I can get more water. Where, where we're bringing all this water, we're taking water from somewhere. And if someone will do that to us, that will be no fun. Like really, like no fun at all. So why do we just keep thinking about it? Now, be rest assured. We have water. Look around. I mean, we are seeing plants. We have a forest. We have water around. If you see something green around it, it's because it has water. We don't have that much water for all the things that we can imagine. The amount of water that we're putting in, in some of these irresponsible agriculture, it is no longer there. It is bigger the size than the amount of water that we have, and we will have to reduce that water use. The same for our front yards and backyards. If our listeners wants to reduce their water, their front yard and the backyard is the place to start. Those who own a house, 50 to 60% of our water use goes into the front yard and the backyard. You want to reduce water use? Number one, use native species. Look for your irrigation system. Make sure that you are not watering the pavement. So those things will really help. Those are great there were two categories there. First, for us to be advocates for water, really being allies to our water source. So we have to know where our water comes from. You mentioned the community water center and entering in your zip code for water quality and knowing where your water comes from. That's important. And then also knowing your water company and what their plans are, because your each water company has a plan for water. And yes, I'm so happy that scientists and engineers and so many people who study this are working on a plan for us. And then I love the third area that you mentioned to be an advocate, changing the mindset. And that happens so much in everything that we do. But in particular, as I age and become what they're calling an older adult, 50 plus, I'm learning that changing the mindset of so many things impacts not just our communities, but it impacts our personal health. So these water issues, I think, are a part of that and a part of why we do need to pay attention and be advocates for water and water sources to make sure that we have enough of it and to make sure that it's healthy. So, Sam, let's shift a little bit. September is National Disaster Preparedness Month, and I want to explore a little around the correlation of water and extreme weather events. First, how did the 2023 storms and the water that it brought to us impact California residents? We're in this either feast or famine, where either we have all the water in the world or we don't have any. And for a long time, again, eight out of the last 12 years, they were dry. But in those four years that were wet, we have the wettest here on 100 years. And it wasn't 2023, it was 2017. How that comes? Well, basically, it was a lot of precipitation, but it didn't come in terms of snow, it was rain, and it was hot. If any one of you remember on 2017, 2018, the mayhem that almost happened in, in Oroville, I mean, that was like this close Oroville to the reservoir Oroville to be over top. That was not fun at all. 
on the other side, we have the fires of 2018. So we're just going to one side to the other. What I was mentioning is that we have these either very few or not so much. Something that I want to mention. So this year, right, on 2023, we have Tulare Lake back again. And it was flooding Allen's words. The first black community in the Central Valley in California. We were flooding those walks. Now it's a more mostly an Hispanic community. So you can still see that some of these disparities or where people were able to afford a house, that it is in a place that is very insecure. Then time will come, water will follow its paths and it will reclaim what, what it used to be. And, and I think this speaks a lot of those inequalities. I do think that, I mean, we can recognize it, but the most important thing is how can we help? And how can we help is to be a good ally, a good water ally, in terms of putting our weight to also be an advocate for all of these communities that they have problems with water, floods and droughts. So, Sam, that's pretty amazing how we're looking at this water as this resource that we need so much and want to have it pour down as much as we can. But then it causes these floods and other natural disasters can happen with it. And then you mentioned, of course, uh, Allensworth, the flooding there, one of the first Black communities in California, and how those disparities happen. It's just amazing how water is such a powerful force and a resource that's essential for our existence and still bringing such a force that can actually destroy our existence as well. Are we expecting another wet season or do we return back to these drought-ridden, drier type of winters? So, Theon, one of the things here is that every time that I bring the crystal ball, I will get it wrong. So please, all the audience, I love it. be aware that I'm going to get it super wrong. So we are entering El Nino phase. What that means is that typically when we have El Nino, we have wet conditions. So, most likely, if the old crystal ball still works, we will have another wet year, which that will be great. I mean, we really need a break. Your crystal ball is going to work, Sam. It's going to work. <laughs> I do hope so. I really hope so. It's working in water for the last 12, well, 20 years or so. And the last 12 being in a drought, it has become tiresome. So definitely, crystal ball, please. So basically, yeah, I think that's what we're going to have. But in any case, if it is another wet year, we should be prepared for both. I mean, if our recent past tell us something, is that either it can be super wet or it can be no precipitation at all. Okay, well, we're going to look to see how that works for us. It's interesting because you can't predict anything. But let's get in a plug that AARP offers great resources that can help residents and communities prepare for natural disasters and extreme weather events, including floods and fires. So when it comes to the droughts or warm weather, check out AARP to receive some resources. You can find these toolkits and more at aarp.org forward slash livable. That's aarp.org forward slash livable. If you had to predict, what does the future of water in California look like? Look back into that crystal ball. What does the future of water look like? 
I actually want to make a positive future. I am an optimistic. I'm a long time optimistic. So I think we will have a good future if and only if all of us decide to change our mindset, to pull our weight. Something that is really interesting is that, you know, water is a shared resource. It's not a private resource. Sometimes we treat it private and that is not adequate. All of us, we like to cook, we like to drink water and we like to take a bath. So it is a shared resource. I think if we do that, my positive future thinking is that the water that you're saving is not like, oh, that's my water. It's water that we are saving and that everyone is saving for the good of our community. That is extremely important. I know that we have in our mindset, our community thinking. Let's always keep that hat of our community thinking and do that. There are very few things in life that are for sure, like extremely very few. One is that a flood is coming and a drought is coming. Those are two things that I'm 100% sure. So in our future is let's be more prepared. Let's think community-wise, not individually-wise. How can I be better? Something that I was thinking there also specifically for, so drought, it is kind of a slow death. So basically it is a slow pain. You will have to accommodate as time goes. Floods is a different game. For floods, make sure that you have your papers available and you don't need anything else other than your papers. Whatever you think is there, that is it. Have a plan. Make sure that you can get yourself in your text phone, in yourself. The other part is communication. Many cities have cell phones, text messages that they will send you in case of an emergency. Make sure that you know or that you go into your city website and you register on that. That is very important. Number three, make sure that either neighbors or people that live close to you have your cell phone and that you talk to them in case you need to be evacuated and get a safe route. This is not trying to scare anyone. This is just being conscious and being prepared of if a flood happens, and I, I really don't want that any flood happen, but if it has to happen, what will be my action plan? Where I can I take my papers? Where I can go? Who I will need to contact or who can contact me? to actually go to a safe route, and that will be it. But we have to be aware. That's so important for us to be aware, to be prepared, to have some great ways of being good water stewards. I love that you mentioned the front yards and the backyards, and I'll have to get my gardener to double-check my irrigation system as well, because I have noticed it's leaking out on the sidewalks a lot, which we just don't need. And then being prepared during a disaster is so important, very, very important. So Dr. Solis, Sam, I want to thank you for coming on to the show and just ask if you have any final comments before we wrap it up. Yeah, you know, I really want to go out with another Mythbuster. Our audience think, where do you use the most water on a daily basis? And you may think, well, when I'm taking the shower or when I'm irrigating the front yard. Actually, it is in our food. 80% of the water that is used throughout the world goes to agriculture. 
And it depends. So whatever we're putting in our plate, it really sends a message what producers can produce, what, what our farmers are producing. So from the lowest to the highest water use. So vegetables is the lowest, then fruits, then some of our nuts, then all the processing food. And when I say processing food, it can be cookies or all of those processed foods. Dairy will be at the top. There is yogurts, cheeses, and finally, animal protein. And also when you think on your plate, like I'm pretty sure most of you were thinking like, oh my God, a really nice salad. And I, I'm all over it. The same with a good steak. In terms of food and in terms of animal protein, if there is something that I can recommend, use either a humanly raised meat or grass-fed. That has the lowest impact on the environment, just from that point of view. I really want to come back to the point of us as a community, having this mindset of us as a community. And I really want to give you with the thinking that water is everyone's responsibility. So all of us, we can do something to improve our water. It's not farmers. It's not city managers. It is all of us. If we're thinking only like, oh, agriculture should do their thing, we're taking responsibility out of our shoulders. And that is not community thinking. It is our responsibility. It is the same for the industry. Every drop counts. And I want our audience to think about that. Theon, if I can, we have another podcast that talks about water, water in California. The name of the podcast is Water Talk. Water Talk Podcast and it's watertalkpodcast.com. It is from the University of California. And we talked about water. We talked about all these different issues. Get yourself informed. Take a look at those water quality reports. Look at your front yard, backyard. How can you save some water? Think community. Be prepared. We're here for you. We are definitely here for you. And it is always a pleasure. Sam, thank you so much. Those are great, great pointers. And I guess the main thing I want to say that I'm taking away from this is every drop counts. And we have to shift our mindsets to make sure that we count those drops that we're putting out there of our water. Dr. Solis, thank you for joining us on In Clear Terms with AARP California. This was a wonderful conversation. Again, we've had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Samuel Sandoval Solis to discuss the state of water in California. In future episodes, we look forward to hosting experts who can shed light on critical issues in our state, how AARP California is working to ensure the voice of those ages 50 plus is heard, and how you, our listeners, can learn more and act on these important decisions. Thank you for listening.